Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, in case you're a guest. We're so glad you're here on this holiday weekend. Uh, I've been looking forward to this time because I get to hang out with my church family and interact around God's Word. And I hope this morning, three things will be accomplished. One is I hope you'll find this message informative, but I also hope you'll find it challenging and then encouraging. As I thought of our time together, I I ended up with a title called Learning from a Life Quake. Learning from a Life Quake. You know, sometimes in life, events take place that change us forever. And I was struck by a story, a true story, about Louis, who lived in 1818 in France. At the time, he was nine years old, was sitting in his father's workshop. And the father was a harness maker, and the boy loved to watch his father work the leather. Someday, father, said Louis, I want to be a harness maker just like you. Why not start now, said the father. He took a piece of leather and drew a design on it. Now, my son, he said, take the hole puncher and a hammer and follow this design, but be careful that you don't hit your hand. Excited, the boy began to work, and when he hit the hole puncher, it flew out of his hand and pierced his eye. He lost the sight of that eye immediately. Later, sight in the other eye also failed. Lewis was now totally blind. A few years later, Lewis was sitting in the family garden when a friend handed him a pine cone. As he ran his sensitive fingers over the cone, an idea came to him. He became enthusiastic and began to create an alphabet of raised dots on paper so that the blind could feel and interpret what was written. Thus, Lewis Braille helped to change the world when he adjusted to his life-altering blindness. Amazing story, isn't it? I also was struck by Tim Keller, who is one of my favorite teachers. (laughs) He said, there's another kind of life-altering experience. It's an encounter with Jesus. He said, when a great big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. And when a big man goes on to thin ice, there's an ice quake. Whenever Jesus comes down into a person's life, there's a life quake. Everything is reordered. On the road to Damascus, Paul experienced a life quake. Everything changed for him when he encountered Jesus. And that life quake has helped to change the world as well. This morning, we're going to discover how that meeting with Jesus changed Paul's life in two significant ways, and then what it means for us today. Some of you, like my wife, enjoy taking notes, so I have a nice little outline for you in case you want to do that. It's three R's, easy for you to remember. Resume, review, realization. And when we get to that third point, we'll find two life-altering applications that we all need to apply. Resume, review, realization. Instead of looking at Acts chapter 9, which we just read, we're actually going to look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 14. So you might want to turn in your Bibles there. 
The letter of Philippians was written by Paul about 25 years after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. An amazing thought. 25 years later, he writes Philippians. Paul was probably around 30 years old when he was on the road to Damascus. And now he's 55 when he writes Philippians. Paul had plenty of time to sort out what happened to him in that lifequake experience with Jesus. And so my first point is resume. Philippians 3, verses 4-6. to Let me read that for you. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I don't know about you, but when you read that, you're wondering why in the world is Paul giving his resume? That's like me coming up here giving my resume to you. You wouldn't be too impressed. You'd think, what's his problem? (laughs) Right? Well, you have to understand at the time that Paul wrote this, Philippi was a Roman colony. And that meant that they took great pride in modeling the approach to life that Rome had. And today, you and I probably pursue money, power, self-expression, independence. We see that all in our culture today as the ultimate good in life. But in that day and age, the ultimate good was honor. Paul strove to have honor both before God and before man. So Paul understood his audience as he's writing the Philippians. He's writing in a way that they could understand. He's giving his credentials to be able to give them instruction. And so in his resume, there are seven things that he lists. I'm sure there's more that he could have put there, but he put seven. The first four relate to his heritage, and the second three relate to his accomplishments. And I want to touch on those real quickly before we move on. First, he says he's circumcised on the eighth day. Now, the significance of that is converts to Judaism were circumcised in maturity. Paul is saying, I'm not a convert. Ishmaelites, the other son of Abraham, were circumcised at 13 years old. So what is Paul saying when he says, I'm circumcised the eighth day? He's saying, I am from the right son of Abraham, Isaac. It says, too, that he's from the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul's helping them understand he's from God's people, the right people group. And he's from the right family within that people group, Benjamin. Benjamin was famous for producing the first king of Israel, Saul. Then he goes on to say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what he's trying to say there, he's not polluted by the culture. The Roman culture or the Greek influence had not polluted him. He's a pure, strict Hebrew. That's his heritage. Things that were out of his control that he was born with, but that's who he is. Now his accomplishments. He says, I'm a Pharisee. A member of the strictest religious sect among the people. He carefully followed God's law. He says also that he's a persecutor of the church. The reason he says this is because he wants the readers to understand that he's not some run-of-the-mill Pharisee. Zeal for the Jewish people was highly valued 
It was prized. So what he's saying, I persecuted the church. I tried to stamp out the Christian movement. I have zeal for God. And then he finally says, as to the law, I'm blameless. Now, Paul is not saying in any way that he's without sin, but what he's saying is that when it comes to the law, I followed every dot and crossed every T. I am blameless in relation to the law. As the Philippians would have read Paul's resume, they would have been extremely impressed with who, his heritage and his accomplishment. Paul truly was a man of great honor, both before God and before man. But that's who Paul was before he met Jesus. That's who Paul was before he had his lifequake event in Acts chapter 9 that we just read about. And so what he does now, after giving his resume, he goes on to tell the readers uh, that he has evaluated his resume. And I think he does it twice. And we're going to look at that here in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Let's look at that together. This is my second point, review. He's already given us his resume. Okay, Now he's going to review his resume. He says this, "...but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss." for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'll leave that up there just for a minute. I want you to notice four words. Gain, count, loss, and rubbish. Paul transitions in these verses to accounting terminologies. Do we have any CPAs here? Any accountants? Okay. Uh, he is going to add up some things and evaluate. He's making a profit-loss statement, if, it, if you would. And the first thing I want you to notice there, he says, I counted. That word count means I'm going to give careful consideration to the things on my resume. I'm going to tally them up. And he says, each one of the things on my, my resume... I consider gain. Now the thing here that you need to notice, the word gain is actually plural. It's hard to see that in English, but it's plural. And so what he's saying is, I'm looking at each one of those seven things that I mentioned on my resume, and I'm putting a plus in the profit side of my profit and loss statement. In fact, if I were to add it all up now, you're going to find that I'm a man of honor. So I think I've got a little slide here of a, profit-loss statement, if you guys could put that up. Oh, it's up there. I just can't see it that way. All right, there we go. Way to go, thanks. <laughs> if you notice, each item on his profit-loss statement is a plus. And he considers himself a man of great honor. And that's who Paul was on his road to Damascus. He's passionately serving God by what he thinks is trying to crush the Christian movement. But what ends up happening? He meets Jesus. Did you notice what it said in Acts chapter 9? Who are you, Lord? He didn't understand who it was he was trying to destroy. The people of Jesus. And so now I think he goes back and he reevaluates in light of his encounter with Jesus. He says, you know what? All those things I considered as profit, 
now that I look at it, now that I've met Jesus and know better, I consider each one of those things as loss. In fact, if I were to add this up, I'd find out that I'm bankrupt. I'm in the red. I'm broke. I'm in debt to God. In fact, he uses the word, what? Rubbish. Now, that word has two primary meanings. The first common usage of the word means this is fit to be thrown to the dogs. There is no value except to throw it to the dogs. Dogs, I'm a dog lover, but in that day, dogs were scavengers that lived on the street. And so what Paul is saying, when I look at my life now that I've met Jesus and all my accomplishments, you know what they're worth? They're worth nothing. They're just worth throwing to the dogs. The medical usage of this term, which you might have heard of before, is actually dung or manure. So when Paul now looks at his life, he goes, I don't add up. It's not what I thought now that I've met Jesus. Paul realized that everything he'd hoped for and hoped in to bring him honor before God and man was rubbish. It was worthless and needed to be thrown to the dogs. Can you imagine the shock that Paul had? A very passionate man pursuing what he thought was the way God wanted him to live, and he found out he was absolutely going the wrong direction, completely the wrong direction. What happened? What did he come to understand when he met Jesus? And that's what we want to look at now. We want to look at the third point in my outline is realization. There are two significant things that Paul learned when he met Jesus. Now, I'm not saying those are the only two, <laughs> okay? There's two things that I want us to see today. And if you notice in verse 9 of Philippians 3, it says, and this is what I long for, Paul says. I long to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my resume, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what's Paul's first lifequake realization? He needed passive righteousness. Passive righteousness. You might not have heard of that term before. I heard this from Martin Luther who wrote uh, on Galatians 500 years ago. Can you imagine how long ago that was? <laughs> Two times the, the age of our country is how long ago Martin Luther wrote about this. But we're going to get to that in a second. But notice in verse 9, he says, I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. So Paul is contrasting earning righteousness and receiving righteousness. Huge difference between the two. Paul discovered that faith is not an alternative way of earning God's favor. Faith is the opposite of merit. An admission that I cannot earn God's approval, but can only accept His free offer of forgiveness, grace, and love. Paul was a legalistic Pharisee, and he was encountered by Jesus who taught him that you can't earn my love and my forgiveness. You can only receive it passively. It's a gift. It's by grace through faith in Jesus alone that you can have righteousness. In fact, Paul says it a little bit different in Galatians 2.16, which I think we'll have up on the screen here as well. Paul wrote Galatians about 13 years before Philippians. 
And he said this, he said, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I want you to notice in that uh, verse, the word justified is used three times. And the word justified comes from the law court system. And it means to declare righteous. And so what is Paul saying is that I cannot justify myself. I have to have another justify me. And the reason we know this is true is because these verbs justify are passive in their voice. Now, I know I'm going back to English. Uh, some of you know what that means. All right, But if the subject of the verb is in the active voice, that means the subject accomplishes the action of the verb. If it's passive, he receives the action of the verb. So what's happening here? What he's saying is, I can't justify myself. No matter how good I am, no matter how hard I work at it, I can only be justified, and that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Martin Luther said almost 500 years ago. The most excellent righteousness of faith which God through Christ without any works imputes to us is neither righteousness of God's law nor consists of works, but is contrary to these. It's a mere passive righteousness as the others are active. For in the righteousness of faith, we work nothing. We render nothing unto God but we only receive and suffer another to work in us, that is to say, God. The only way you and I can stand in the presence of God in a righteous way is if we receive passive righteousness. And that only comes by embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior in God. And if you notice back in, in, in chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, notice what Paul says here. Even I believed... In Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing statement from this strict Pharisee? I came to understand that even I needed to believe in Jesus. Another scholar says it this way man's great and radical need is justification. But the law can never justify the lawbreaker. Despairing of his efforts to achieve righteousness by his works, man's only hope was to turn away from himself and to seek the refuge of faith in the pardoning grace which had been promised. So Paul's first lifequake realization when he met Jesus was, I can't earn your love or forgiveness or a righteous standing before you. I must receive it by embracing you as my Savior and God. The second realization that he had that day um, and it's for those who have been justified. He's talking about those who've embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior and God. The second thing he learned, I think, is that we need an active relationship with Jesus Christ. We need passive righteousness that we receive by faith alone because of what Jesus has done for us, but we need an active relationship with Jesus. Notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you see what Paul's longing for here? He's longing for a relationship with Jesus. Now this is a very, very important observation. The Gospel is good news, right? Are you with me? The Gospel is good news. But the Gospel is not just something to believe. The Gospel is something to experience. This is very important. There are far too many people who are just lost in their mind with facts about Jesus. And Paul says, I don't want that. I want to learn more about Jesus, but I want to know Jesus. I want to know Him in the resurrection of His power. So there's three things that he mentions about a relationship with Jesus that I want to highlight here real quickly. The first two are in the verses that we just read. He says, I want to know Him in the power of His resurrection. Now what does that mean? He wants to experience the power of the resurrected Lord in his life right now. Not in heaven, although he'll do that as well. He wants to experience right now the resurrected Lord in his life as he reigns through him. That's what he's longing for. One scholar said it this way, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection means Paul is not content merely to know Christ as a fact of history, but to know Him personally as the resurrected, ever-living Lord of His life. He wishes to know Christ by experiencing the power He wields in virtue of His resurrection. Y'all, we can't just have our relationship up in our head. It's got to move down to our heart. The Lord needs to be reigning in our life. We need to be experience a life-changing relationship with Him. That's the second part of the Gospel that we often don't talk about. The second part of His relationship, notice what He said back in, in verses 10 and 11, that I want to become like Him. Paul, he's not trying to be obedient to the law anymore. I want to know Jesus and I want to become like Jesus. It's interesting, in, in Galatians 4.19, Again, he wrote this a few years earlier. He says this, Oh, my dear children, my converts to the faith, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. What did Paul want to see in his converts? He wanted to see Jesus in them. He wanted them to become like Jesus over time. The words we translate fully developed mean to take on the form of. Are you becoming more like Jesus if you've embraced Him as your Savior and God? Is He the number one allegiance of your heart? That is what we need to be doing as His disciples and His followers. Notice, the third thing I want to bring to your attention is actually in verses 13 and 14. Paul has already said, hey, I want, to, I want to know Christ in the power of His resurrection as He reigns through me. I want to become like Him over time. But the third thing he says this in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, maturity, yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what impresses me about this verse is the 
words, press on. Now, let me explain why I'm so impressed by this. Press on is in the present tense. Okay? That means when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, he was continually working hard at trying to do something, and that was to become like Jesus and develop his relationship with him. Why would that impress me so much? How far, how long ago did we say that Paul met Jesus? 25 years ago. And Paul in Philippians in jail is still pursuing him on a moment by moment basis. 25 years later, the quest to be like Jesus never ends for the believer. I don't know if you guys, uh, I hope this won't offend you, but uh, I'm a, I, I enjoyed seeing Top Gun, the original movie Top Gun, and the second one, all right? But do you remember in the original movie Top Gun when Tom Cruise, Maverick, because of some things that happened, he was in a dogfight and he disengaged in the battle? Do you all remember that? And what were his, his uh, other comrades encouraging him to do? Maverick, re-engage. Re-engage. Get back in the fight. Right? Do you remember that scene? Powerful scene. And he re-engages. I'm afraid many of us as Christians have disengaged. We became a Christian many years ago. I became a Christian 40 years ago. I don't know how, about how long you became a Christian. How long ago that was. But sometimes when you've been a Christian a long time, it's easy to coast. And it's easy to disengage. Where are you at in your relationship with Jesus Christ? We can't do that. We have to follow Paul's model. We have to press on moment by moment, pursuing him to become like him over time and experience the power of his resurrection as he reigns in our lives. We have to re-engage. I like what John Walvoord, the former president of Dallas Seminary, said. Paul pursued Christ-likeness with the enthusiasm and persistence of a runner in the Greek games. Paul did not claim to have attained spiritual maturity. He was still pressing on, pursuing that for which Jesus took hold of him. Nor had he yet taken hold of it. He hadn't become like Jesus. He hadn't become mature. But he kept pressing on. But he was determined that he would forget what was in the past and like a runner, press on toward the goal of Christ-likeness. So for Paul, he's learned two significant things when he met Jesus. The first, I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't earn a righteous standing before God. I have to have a passive righteousness that only comes from me embracing Jesus Christ as my Savior and God. And the second is that I need an active relationship with Jesus. He's got to be the number one allegiance of my heart and I have to pursue Him moment by moment to become like Him over time. So the question I have for you today and me is so what does that mean for us? That's what Paul learned, but what does this mean for us? It means the same thing. We need passive righteousness by faith in Jesus. We need the gift of God's righteousness where we do not try to earn it, but simply receive it as a gift. This is the only way to be righteous before God. Now this is a very important point. Coming to church on Sunday morning doesn't make you a Christian any more than living in your garage makes you a car. Okay? 
The only way you become a Christian is by embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior and God. You have to take the gift of forgiveness so that you're declared righteous in the sight of God. It's available, but it's not automatically yours. You have to take it. This truth really struck home for me when I was uh, reading about George Wilson. In 1830, true story, George Wilson was tried by the U.S. court in Philadelphia for robbery and murder and was sentenced to hang. Andrew Jackson, President of the United States, granted him a presidential pardon. But Wilson refused it, insisting that it was not a pardon unless he accepted it. The question was brought before the U.S. Supreme Court and Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the following decision. A pardon is a paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It's hardly to be supposed that one under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon, but if it's refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must hang. What was the outcome? George Wilson was hanged. We each owe the penalty of death because of our sin. And only by embracing and receiving the gift of forgiveness, the pardon of Jesus, can that be addressed. And so if you haven't yet embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and God, don't wait any longer. May today be the day that you accept His gift of forgiveness. Second, you and I need an active relationship with Jesus. Because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this about your relationship with the Lord or how God has designed the Christian life, but the only lasting, meaningful way to live life is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ where He reigns in your life. That is the only way it can be found. That is the good life. Living under the reign of God. So, I'm not sure where you're at in your your personal relationship with Jesus, but if you're one of those who've disengaged, please re-engage. We need you in the battle. We need you in the fight to become like Jesus over time. Now, you might be wondering, how does that relationship work exactly? I want to just say a couple quick things about a relationship with Jesus. Do you have someone in your life right now that speaks into your life? Could be your best friend. Could be your spouse. Do you have somebody in your life that tells you the truth, that loves you for who you are, but want to help you become all you can can be? This person rebukes you when you're wrong, corrects you to help you get things right, instructs you and guides you? That's what a good relationship looks like, isn't it? But you know what? That's what Jesus does for us. He's our constant discipler. He... As we spend time in God's Word, this is how it works. That's why the Word is so important. As we spend time in God's Word, He loves us. He teaches us. He rebukes us. He corrects us. He trains us to become like Him. That's how a relationship with God works. He speaks to us through His Word. The important part is that I have to yield to His leadership. I can't bow up and say, I'm not doing that. I've got to bend my knee and say, yes, Lord, Your will be done in my life. Whatever You bring up to me. And then the the other part of our relationship, we get to talk to Him, right? We get to talk to Him through prayer where we get to share our heart and the needs that we have with the One who cares for us and is uh, is walking with us moment by moment every day of of our lives. 
I like what uh, Paul Miller said in his book on prayer. Spending time with the Father in prayer will integrate our lives with His. With what He is doing in us. Don't you want your life integrated with God's will for your life? Prayer is a way to move the facts in your head to your heart as you yield to His leadership in your life. So as we wrap up this morning, I would encourage you to make Jesus the number one allegiance of your life. Everything else needs to be second compared to Him. Now the other thing I want you to know is if you have any questions or you're not sure, how do I embrace Jesus as my Savior and God? How do I accept this gift of forgiveness that you're talking about? I'd encourage you to talk to any of the pastors here, the staff, the elders. We'd love to help you. That's step one. Step two is if you have questions about how to grow as a Christian, we want to help you with that as well. And I'll just throw out there as a little promo. Be looking for our classes that will be coming this fall to help you grow in your relationship with God. So as we wrap up, let's remember that the Gospel really is great news. Not just to believe. We certainly have to believe things about the Gospel. Righteousness by faith in Jesus alone. But it's great news to experience a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your design for us. Thank You for Paul. He's such an amazing example of the Christian life. A man who was pursuing his own way, trying to earn his position of favor in your, your eyes. But then he encountered Jesus and he had a life quake. Everything was reordered. Everything changed. Two of the most significant things are first that he realized he couldn't earn a, a righteous standing before you. He had to receive the gift of righteousness that you offer through belief in your Son, Jesus Christ. And then he understood the thing that became the passion of his life was knowing Jesus, having an intimate relationship with Him, experiencing the resurrected power of the Lord in his life, and becoming like Jesus over time. Father, will you help us to make that happen in our lives? We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.